Please, if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 14. I'll be reading Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, and you, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Father, I'm desperate for you to cause my mind to be fluid that I deal with this text honestly, that I re-say what You intended, Lord Jesus, at this dinner 2,000 years ago, and that by Your Spirit, You mercifully work in our hearts to be moved, to be changed, to repent, and to have great joy that we're Yours in the resurrection of the just is our destiny. Work these things to the glory of your name. Amen. We live in a day and an age where the foundational doctrine is self-esteem. Every kid from every team in my children's little league gets a trophy. God forbid they just give trophies to those kids on the team that win the league like when I grew up 
because we might hurt little Joey's self-esteem. It's everywhere. We live in a day and an age of feel-good-about-yourself Christianity. Sermons should only be positive. Use the Bible in a way that you help all the people there feel really good about where they are in life. I'm okay, you're okay, Jesus is terrific. Jesus seems to have not gotten that memo. He confronts. He challenges our hypocrisy and our sin again and again. If you're a professing Christian and you are not using your Bible, I mean, for numbers of other things, oh, there is wonderful encouragement when you understand the gospel and you realize, I believe. But if you're not using your Bible, the Scripture, to confront your life daily, then you are not growing in Christ. Paul said it this way, all Scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. That's why he said to Timothy, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove and to rebuke and to encourage with great patience in teaching. The Bible The Gospel of Jesus. Oh, and Jesus' recorded words in particular are constantly present with the reality of heaven and hell as motivators to genuine faith and repentance. He exposes in our lives today, as He did back then, false believers. And with His words in the Holy Scripture, they are meant to mold genuine believers, to sanctify them in their lives. If you have been brought to Christ and you are born again, you are different than you were before. The light has gone on. The Spirit dwells in you. But we are nevertheless still littered with sin and sinful inclinations. And God is using the Scripture in believers' lives to constantly clean out the old and build the new pursuit of holiness. And oh boy, does Jesus do that this morning at this dinner party at the Pharisee's house. Many of us in here have been following Jesus in His ministry for the last year and a half through the Gospel of Luke. And it seems that every time He opens His mouth, He is exposing somebody's hypocrisy or disingenuousness in their religion. I mean, do we have any words of Jesus that just fell from His mouth that weren't words that penetrated to the ultimate issues of our eternal souls. No wonder they said of Him, no man ever spoke like this guy. And 
Jesus Himself said, everyone who is of the truth listens to My voice. And so as we look at our text this morning, we go into this house at this dinner party and we hear Jesus speaking to us through what happened that day, there is a division that is created. On one side of that division are those who are of the truth. They listen to His voice. They repent. They obey. This is how Jesus said it in John 10. My sheep hear My voice. I know them, and they will follow me. Now, on the other side of the divide about Jesus' words this morning are those who are not of the truth. They do not have ears to hear. They do not treasure what Jesus actually says. They may be churchgoers. They may be very religious like all of the people at this table that day. And this is what Jesus says to those people on that side of the division. This is how he said it in John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason that you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so, my plea is as we now sit down at the table in this Pharisee's house and listen carefully to what Jesus says, that we receive His words so that we do not find ourselves outside of His sheepfold. So are you there? Luke 14. Start with verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching Him carefully. And behold, there was a man before Him who had dropsy. Okay, this was a setup. They chose the home of one of the prominent Pharisees in that town. They invited a bunch of elites to this dinner party who would be able to bear witness if Jesus slipped up, did something wrong again on the Sabbath. It was carefully chosen on Saturday, the Sabbath, they know in other towns, their fellow Pharisees, professional scholars of the Bible called the lawyers, had a big problem with stuff Jesus would do in the synagogue or other stuff on the Sabbath day. He worked. I mean, he healed people and cast out demons. And they set a trap for him. And that's why it says they were watching him carefully. They were lurking. They were lying in wait to catch Him, doing something that breaks their traditional understanding of the law, their oral 
traditions. But Jesus trapped them by one simple question. See it there in verse 3? And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? <laughs> he trapped them. See, if they answer, Yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, that no one's going to speak up because then their fellow fundamentalist goes into Christianity too. Their fellow fundamentalists say, you can't, what are you talking about? You're going soft on our law? They're afraid to speak up. If they said, yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, they fear their fellow religious fundamentalists. But if they say no, out loud too, they know they're going to be accused of appearing to be callous and uncaring about the suffering of other people. And that's why verse 4 says, but they remained silent. See, we know the real answer of these guys. We've already seen it through, throughout Luke. The real answer to the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Their answer is, <laughs> well, it depends. Jesus is going to get there in a minute. But concerning this guy here, with dropsy, see, the guy had dropsy. That means he is very visibly sick. His torso is really swollen, filled with all these fluids because he's having internal organs shut down. Going to die probably from it. Okay, they think this. No, it's not legal to heal on the Sabbath. This man's suffering can wait another day. It really goes down to this. It is, unle it is illegal, Jesus, to heal on the Sabbath people who are not really dear to me. Personally. See, you remember back a chapter in chapter 13, we read, Then a ruler of the synagogue stood up, and because he was angry, said, He's angry at Jesus healing on the Sabbath. He said, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. But don't get healed on the Sabbath day. We know exactly what they thought. The unregenerate, those who have not been born again, religious people, for them, appearance is everything. And then Jesus, He just pushed it. In verses 4 to 6. They couldn't speak. Then he took him, the man, and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these Thing. So, here's this sight, man. This guy's bloated. Jesus 
takes him up to himself. And then, however, he healed him. Something was obviously different. Swelling has gone down. They see a miracle. He sends them away. And then he asks another question, and that second question seals their lips even further. Which of you guys, if your son or, you, or your ox, you need it for work to make money, falls into a well, are going to wait until Sunday to save it? Jesus leaves it to us to understand exactly His cutting point. He is saying, you professional Bible law scholars, you who belong to that denomination, that segment, exclusive fundamentalist, Pharisees, you have, you have a huge interest in your own immediate Welfare, comfort. And so, when your religious rules and laws get in the way of something that's very personal to you, you have no problem of relativizing your religion and your law. You have ways to do it. If it affects you or your loved ones or your comfort, you have all kinds of religious tricks to get around. The rigidity of the law. But when it refers to someone else like this guy with dropsy, whom you could not care less about, then it's real convenient to stay rigid. It says don't work. Oh, that healing would be work. Don't do that. If it would meet your felt needs, Pharisees, You'll cause the law to be pliable. But if it refers to someone else who doesn't really touch you emotionally, nothing invested in it, then you will be really rigid and judgmental with your law. See, in their attempts to keep all the legalistic minutiae of their oral traditions, here's the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, and then they had tons of other oral traditions. Okay, 800 different laws about the Sabbath that are not in the Bible and how to keep them and how to maybe get around where you can do some work and pull your ox out and save them. We have this stuff written down since they're in, called the Mishnah since the first century. But when it comes to someone you don't care about, you don't apply any of those laws. And Jesus' point is, it's evidence that you guys are dead to God. It's evidence that you miss the entire purpose of the law of Moses. To love God and to love others. Like this poor man with dropsy. And it's the same evidence today in the church when professing Christians have all kinds of reasons why Jesus' law, His command, following Him this way, written in Scripture, is really not applying to me. I don't really need to repent 
of that lifestyle. There are reasons I don't really need to be bearing the fruit of loving others. See, a person can be very far from the one true God and be very religious in doing it. The, the human being at his worst is the religious person, particularly with the right book, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, all translated in English. A religious person using the Bible to protect himself from having to go out of his way and obey Jesus and love others. At this dinner party, Jesus is like a bull in a china closet. Trust me, this was really uncomfortable as they sat there. I mean, he's an invited guest. And he tears into them. Evidently, he was not seeking to get another invitation someday. Because that's not how you get it. That's not what Jesus ever did. Jesus is never about meeting us sinners, our felt needs, and say, let me tell you what you really would like to hear and make you feel good. He is about saving. He is about really loving sinners. So He's direct. Now, we're at the dinner party, and He's not done yet. Because he goes now, he goes on to expose the pride of all the dinner guests around him. He's been watching them very carefully. He's not looking for what kind of clothing they have on. Is it appropriate? He's not looking for where they come from or their educational attainments or what they do for work. But he is carefully looking for what they love. Verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Jesus always watches to see where our treasure is. For where your treasure is, there is where your heart is also. And Jesus is always after the heart. So He watches and He sees what these guys love and they love the praise of men. They love to be thought well of. They love to be esteemed for occupying the best seats. Let's just read the, the whole thing he has to say. Start with verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, <clears throat> sorry, 
give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I, I just hope it's evident, if you know Jesus in the context there, I hope it's evident that his point is not about social etiquette or wisdom. That his point is not a lesson for these guys on how to really get to the high seat of honor at the next dinner party. Oh, here's how you do it, guys. Take the lowest seat. Jesus' purpose in the parable is not to help these guys avoid embarrassment at the next dinner party. And neither was he teaching them false humility. Okay, you really want the higher seat? You re- I know what you worship, and I'm going to help you get what you worship. The praise of men, the praise of honor. Here's how you do it. Go to the lower seat. You won't be embarrassed. And then if you get called up, hey, you made it. It's not his point. What Jesus is doing is laying out a gospel principle. An eternal life principle. He thinks what they do in seeking the praises of men is a sign of something about their heart toward God. So, what Jesus' point is about those who treasure the praises of men is that He thinks it is a particularly (coughs) damning sin. He thinks that these guys, his Pharisee buddies here, are going to go to hell if what they value so much now is not changed. If they don't humble themselves to see how lowly before God they really are and embrace the Savior, Well, this is how he put it. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I'm going to argue, Jesus is referring to eternity there. I want you to flip forward, if you have a Bible, to chapter 18 for a moment. In chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell that little story about a Pharisee praying and a lowly tax collector, okay? And Jesus says, starting with verse 11 of 18, that the Pharisee prays this way, 
God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right over here. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all my earnings. Then the tax collector prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He took the lowest place. He took the honest seat at the table. And then Jesus concluded this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And now, 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 here, now hear the language, it's the same as our text here, ready? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the gospel. To be a sinner like me. To have the grace of God shine the reality of the depths of my sin or of your sin or this tax collector's sin. And you cry out, be merciful to me. I've heard what you've done in Jesus Christ on the cross for sin. Oh, did I ever deserve it. Be merciful to me. And he says he went down to his house justified. To be justified. To be absolutely, totally forgiven of all sin from now to eternity. <coughs> to be made right with God even though you're ungodly is the gospel. He says this guy went down to his house that way. Justified. Not the other. What's the sign of those who are being saved? It's faith. It's a heart that clings to Him and then it bears fruit. It bears fruit that will pray, be merciful to me, a sinner. It bears the fruit in this text of what? Of the knowledge of my wretchedness. God, forgive me. Be merciful. I don't deserve anything. Mercy is undeserved. Let your mercy come. See, the opposite sign of that in religious people is the Pharisee. The opposite sign of those who are justified before God is that they go on loving the praise of men. They live in the deceitfulness of self esteem that says something like this. I'm glad I'm not like others. Look at me. And they look down on others. And they don't care. They don't care if the other gets God's mercy like the man with dropsy on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus says in chapter 18, right there with his little parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, here, here, here's the foundation, for everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself, like that tax collector, look at the sign, I've saved him. You can see the sign. Look at him. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Everyone who humbles himself and takes that lowest seat in life will be exalted. Now, that's my first argument for why Jesus is talking about eternity with that language. The second is just one more. Just turn over to chapter 20 real quickly in Luke. Because here's another place where Jesus deals with the same sin of idolatry manifesting itself in the seeking of being praised by other people. Chapter 20, verse 46, Jesus says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus says about this sin that he's dealing with at the dinner party, seeking the praises of men, there are two things that go hand in glove with it. One is, if someone's in your way, if you've got a poor widow in this society, see, there's no life insurance policies. And all that. There's a poor widow and her house is in your way of getting praised, you will destroy it. Run her over. And the second thing that goes along with it, according to that text, is that in the end, you will receive the greater condemnation at the judgment day. And that's why Jesus now says in our text in chapter 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying, if you guys go on pursuing the seats of honor on earth, then you will not have a seat at all in heaven. Now, if that's not bad enough, Jesus still isn't done. Look at verse 12. He said, also to the man who had invited him, his host. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just or the righteous. So here he is. He turns to his host. You've got to feel it. And he warns him, don't drink that cup of poison. It'll kill you. It's in essence what he said to him. Now he just put it this way. Don't invite your friends and brothers and your rich buddies. Why? 
because of the danger of being repaid by them in the here and the now. It's odd. I mean, who in the world talks like that? Well, the answer is somebody whose kingdom is not of this world talks like that. Someone who knows that this life is but a vapor and then it will soon vanish into eternal life or eternal judgment talks like that. Someone who says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. A guy who says this talks like that. A person who knows, according to our text right here, that there is a resurrection of the just of the righteous. And we know that those are only those sinners who have embraced Jesus Christ and His righteousness is given to them. When a person like Jesus knows the ultimate realities and how concrete they are, He talks like that. Now, don't invite your family, your brothers, your friends. Okay. Okay. We've got to be very careful. That's why I started off the sermon this way. Careful on how we hear what Jesus is saying. So that we don't end up like the Pharisees making excuses why. What his point really is here, I'm not going to apply it to my life. Because we think, what are you talking about? We've we got to have dinner with our families or we... Don't ever eat with our friends. What are you saying, Jesus? I mean, as a church, we're never going to have potlucks. Okay. Now, granted, Jesus is not discouraging here normal hospitality with family and friends and fellow church people. It's not what he is doing. He, he went when he was invited to those kinds of suppers a lot through his ministry. And the New Testament is filled with that subsequently. So that's not his point when you listen to what he's saying. His point is that every one of our hearts has a danger lurking. It's the tendency to live by the principle. I will do a good deed. I will help a person. I will act. Move. Do. Only if there is something coming back to me from the ones I'm helping. You see that? Fear your motive when you invite and who you invite. Lest it's really the motive in order 
They got what I need, and hopefully in the future I'll be paid back. You'll know whether you have given money to somebody, bought a meal for somebody, had them over for dinner, put a coat around their shoulders when they were cold, or a thousand other, you will know your motive was wrong when they did not return a favor to you and you're mad. That's what he's getting at. That was not love. That was manipulation. How come they never invited Bass back over for dinner? <laughs> did I get that through to you? You're all thinking. Did I invite him over to dinner? <laughs> okay. Where was I? Every Christian is called daily, daily to beware, to fight against the tendency to always act on the basis of what I will get out of it right now in this world. Jesus is a radical. And Jesus' words often feel radical even to us believers because our sin is really radical. He here is warning his sheep, beware. Watch your heart. Don't discriminate based upon your selfish desires in order to manipulate other people so that you'll get from them in this life what you really want. Which will also cause you, and this is what's going on in the text, to ignore other people because you see, they don't have what I would need, so why would I bother loving, helping, hanging with them? Later in Luke 16, I want you to turn here for a moment. Just turn over two chapters. Jesus tells the story of the rich man, and outside his house, regularly, was a poverty stricken poor man named Lazarus. And you know, they both die. The rich man is in the place of torment after death. And Abraham says to him, the rich man, you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. Now, why did the rich man ignore Lazarus day after day after day after day. I think because Lazarus was in no position to benefit the rich man with favors. So why bother? The rich man governed his life by the earthly benefits he could receive from those he would invite over for dinner. And he ends up in hell. And Jesus says to us in chapter 14 in our text, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Okay, did you hear what he said? Just just listen to the words. You will be blessed. Why? Because they can't repay you. Jesus says, in your loving acts, there is nothing in it for you. Because they cannot repay you. That's a half truth. I'm going to read the whole text. Got to get it. If you say, in true love, there's no motivation whatsoever to be blessed or to get gain or to get something that I really would like. If you say there should be no motivation in your loving others, then you're disagreeing with Jesus. Because what he says is, there is nothing, in this context, there's nothing in it for you from the ones you're loving. Okay, stop. That's what biblical loving of others is. When you love people as an end. It just stops there. There are no strings attached. You're expecting nothing back from them. The moment you do, it's not love, it's manipulation. Love just ends on the person. Jesus says, that's love. That's why he uses extreme examples to make his point. Once you invite these people who have no money in their society, if they're these kinds of people, they have nothing they can give to you, my rich Pharisee. Once you do that, you're safe because there's no strings attached. They cannot repay you. Okay. That's what he means by there's nothing for you. From them. But, Christian, according to Jesus, there is something huge in it for you, personally. Do you see the last line there in verse 14? For you will be repaid. There it is. Why would he say that unless you should be knowing that and be attracted to that? You will be repaid, not by them and not by earthly blessings. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's amazing. If it's cold, just, just turn it on like I taught you guys. Just click it. As soon as you think, 
Okay, cool. Look at me. I could boast. I could boast like the guys who seek the best seats at the dinner party. I could say, hey, look how great I am. I only invite the poor and the lame and the blind. I only invite those who cannot repay me. See how good I am? You see how much charity I give? Look how much money I give away to the gospel. Look at me. As soon as you feel like you might be able to say that, Jesus just messes it up. He says, no, 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 my sheep. My undeserving sheep whom I love. When I'm saying that your so-called self-denial will bring you great blessing. I'm appealing to a much greater desire than earthly blessings. Your loving acts to others is not and can not ever be without motive. I, Jesus, I'm calling you not to stake your desires for repayment on what you can get materialistically, earthly, or from others. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, shoot for the moon. Don't settle for what others can repay you. Shoot for much greater treasures. Much greater joy for eternal rewards in the future kingdom at the last day when I raise the dead. Be motivated in loving others by that. And it is precisely that that frees us believers to trust His commands and to take the lowest Seeds. Who cares in this vapor of a life what other people think in culture, in society, the church? And you're free to the extent we can walk in it. We're free to just spend and be spent for the good of others in spreading the gospel with its loving deeds towards others. Jesus is radical. He is much more radical than our toned down present day evangelicalism. For Jesus, the realities of heaven, the resurrection of the just, and of hell just absorbed him. They were paramount in the way that he taught. And in our text, like so many of the texts we've seen with Jesus, he is just simply reasonable <laughs> with those two ultimate destinies. If it is true that every one of us in this room will live unendingly forever, either in the resurrection of the just, having been saved by Christ, 
or under eternal judgment of God, then making sure that you have the one and that you escape the other is the most important thing in all of your life. And that's why Jesus constantly motivates loving actions with the carrot of eternal happiness with God in the resurrection and to avoid what you deserve. Why does He do that? Jesus purchased eternal salvation by His life, His death, and His resurrection on the cross. He absorbed the punishment for all sinners who would embrace Him. And God raised Him physically and bodily from the dead. And when people hear that message, and they come to saving faith, there is a miracle in their heart by the Holy Spirit that says, that's true! And they embrace it. It is by that faith they are saved. That's, what, that, that's the Gospel. Oh, then why is Jesus talking about how you love others and how is all that connected to eternal life and eternal salvation? Simply because faith is the heart that bears the fruit of being motivated by Jesus' words. To say, I trust you, Jesus, and He says, come over here. No! Is a contradiction in terms. Jesus, I trust you. Don't be motivated by doing deeds and acts for others in order to get something from them, but do it in order to get eternal joy and rewards from me freely. No, that's not faith. It's a sign that maybe you don't have faith. See, that's, that's the dynamic of how it works. And remember, we started the sermon. Jesus said this. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. A Christian is imperfectly with sin in a repentant lifestyle Repenting from disobeying his words and being convicted against it. Let's move that way. Now here's the here's the rub that we see, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna there's I think it's five more minutes of this. The Christian life is motivated purposefully by Jesus and throughout his apostles. Purposely. He is motivating your activity in your daily life by the carrot in front of you of genuine gain. The gain of real joy. The gain of real joy in Jesus. Experienced by the Spirit now, but particularly laid up for you in heaven in the resurrection. Let me just give you a number of examples. Let's see if we have ears to hear Jesus in His words. First, Jesus takes gain, your gain. Says, you want gain? You want real gain? And He motivates your behavior of loving your enemies. 
for instance. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return or from them. Because listen what he says. Here's his motivation. And your reward. Why would he say that if he doesn't want us to go after it? And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Jesus takes this, this, this treasure, gain, something you would really want if you're his, and he motivates your enduring persecution with joy. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, blessed are you. Why are we blessed by that? And then he gives this command. Rejoice in it. And be glad. Here's the carrot. Because your reward will be great in heaven. Jesus takes gain as the motivation for your giving away your hard-earned money and time and stuff. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. That seems tempting if it's real. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus takes the treasure of gain to motivate Christian for fleeing, hating, and avoiding, and fighting against sexual lust. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and he has already committed adultery with her in his heart, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out! And throw it away. For it is better. Okay, here's his. Okay, it's better. Oh, you want something better? That's what he's doing. It's better that you lose one of the members of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So he appeals. You don't want that, do you? And he says, understand those eternal truths and then fight with it. He takes gain as the motivation to risk everything. Go to some dark jungle of Africa or raise children. Whatever. Risk. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing that they can do. But I might get killed if I risk everything. Like most of his apostles ended up getting killed. For the gospel's sake. I might get killed. He says, don't worry about that. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who only not has the authority to kill the body, but after that, can cast it into hell. Ooh, yeah, I should obey the gospel. Jesus takes the motivation for you to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. In other words, bear the fruit that your so-called faith is genuine faith. Because I hear, I'm a sheep. I listen to His voice. He motivates it with gain, saying, but the one who hears and does not do My words 
is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell. And the ruin of the house is great. He's saying, you don't want that. You want the gain. Jesus takes gain as the motivation to not live for this temporal world, but to sell out to the gospel when he says, for whoever would save his life now in this temporal mortal life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's Oh, man, you will gain it for eternal life. He gives an argument. For what profit is it if a man can gain the whole world? And then you die and you lose your soul. Listen to Jesus in your prayer life before the Word. Say, yes, yes, today, this battle of sin Yes, the battle of my unloving inclinations. Oh, Jesus, foment them in me. Let your spirit come. Oh, I want, I believe, I trust you. Cause my heart to trust these promises. And the power of Christ, by His grace, again, more than last week, will move you. So I just close with these questions. What motivates you, if I take it from our text, is, is it pride in your religion, pride in religious rules, pride in your moralism, which is not springing from a heart of faith in Jesus and in the gospel, and thus causes you constantly to fail to love the guy with dropsy? It's too inconvenient. What motivates you? Is it the places of honor in life? In culture, in the marketplace, in the church. Oh, I just want to be recognized. Or is it using people for your benefit? Only invite to dinner those who could recompense you. Only help those where you got something in it. No, you don't understand. I'm bored with that person. Why would I have to take him out to dinner? Uh-huh. I, there's nothing in it for me. There's no good conversation. Why would I do that? Or does the gospel motivate you? Close it with this in Jesus' words from our text. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. O Father, O great Savior, Lord Jesus, May your words from this text be driven deep into the hearts of us who are yours. And if any in here do not know you, would you change their heart? Would you cause your spirit to open it up and to soften it 
And would you meet them so head on and personally that they will know everything I said in this sermon in a way that is unfathomable to them. Jesus, you are the treasure. May you teach us every day to wake up, spend time with you before we go on our days, looking at your promises, reading your words, being corrected and instructed and crying out for the work of your Spirit to cause our heart to really look for genuine and true and delightful and everlasting pleasures and not be turned aside to the temporal deceptions of the world. To the glory of your name. Continue to work these things in our last few minutes as we sing the power of your spirit.